Hello again, and welcome to our now twice weekly broadcast of Apologetics.Watch, program where we discuss important issues in Christian apologetics, historical theology, and uh, biblical interpretation. So I'm your host, uh, Christian apologist and researcher Luke Wayne, and my uh, producer is here with me, Aaron. Say hi to everybody, Aaron. Hey, everybody. All right. Today we are going to be discussing an issue especially uh, important to me, very close to my heart, and that is going to be the, the subject of Jehovah's Witnesses and how we can reach out to our Jehovah's Witness friends, neighbors, and total strangers that knock on our door on a Saturday morning. And so this is important to me because those of you who don't know, know me might not realize, but conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses are actually why I am a Christian apologist today. And in fact, no Jehovah's Witness would want to hear me say this, but they're a huge part of why I'm a biblically-centered, Trinitarian, historic Christian today. Um, and so I still remember my very earliest conversation with a Jehovah's Witness. Um, and that was actually very young, young age. Got a knock on my door back then, even as a little kid. You, uh, stranger came to your house, you weren't scared to open the door. And went and answered, and it was a Jehovah's Witness couple. I didn't know what that was at the time. I just knew it was a couple people holding Bibles and wanting to talk to me about their magazines. And I was interested. And I listened, listened to their spiel. A well-dressed married couple. A gentleman's name was Samuel. I weirdly remember his name. I don't remember hers. Um, but uh, he, uh, he and I had a little conversation there. I couldn't have been more than five years old at the time. And I know that because the conversation came to a screeching halt when the magazine he was offering, he told me I had to pay for it. And I was stunned. The Baptist church I went to did door-to-door -door ministry. I was used to this idea, but we gave away our tracks for free, and he was, he was wanting to charge me. I think I laughed uh, and kind of brought things to an awkward end. But the latest, the Jehovah's Witnesses stopped charging money for their magazines in 1990. So I had, I, oldest I could have been was five years old. But somehow, even that conversation has stuck with me. But my real substantive dialogues with Jehovah's Witnesses started uh, in my high school years. I was a brand new believer at the time had just come to really own the Christian faith, um, believe the gospel, and follow Jesus as my Lord, and fresh out the door, a couple of Jehovah's Witness knock on my door and express excitement about my newfound vigor to, uh, and, and zeal to follow Jesus, but tell me that everything that I think I know about the Bible, I've misunderstood. I'm wrong. And so they began to systematically challenge the faith that I had just come to embrace. And I, I knew nothing, but the couple verses I remembered would come to mind at just the right time by God's grace. And I muddled through the conversation, agreed to meet them next week, and ran home. And, or I'm already home. I don't know what I'm talking about. I, I ran back to my room, got my Bible, and just started studying. And so the next week, I was ready to talk about the issues that they had brought up, and then the week after that, and the week after that. Uh, and uh, those conversations drove me into the Bible and caused me to gain a foundation for my faith from Scripture that I otherwise never would have, or would have been a long time till I got it. But I studied 
fervently really wanting to know whether what they were saying was true, what the answers to these questions were. And so I, I'm digging into questions about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, heaven and hell, eternity, and finding a foundation for my faith beyond just what family members and friends had told me. And now owning from the scriptures itself realizing that no, the historic Trinitarian Christian faith really is what the Bible teaches. The opposite of what those Jehovah's Witnesses wanted me to get out of those conversations. But something else stayed with me too. And that was a burden, a heart, a compassion, a love, and a genuine desire to reach people who were trapped in the false gospel that these people who I came to think of as my friends, who I looked forward to sitting down with every week to talk about the Bible. But as I came to realize that the Bible really did teach the faith that I believed, it became increasingly clear that it did not teach the faith that they believed. And I wanted that to change. Unfortunately, a time came where they dusted their feet off and left. And for over 10 years after that, no Jehovah's Witness would set foot on my parents' property. Even after I moved off to college, they would tell me they'd see the Jehovah's Witnesses go down the street. And when they came down our side of the street, they just walk around our house and go on to the next one. And that door was closed for years until late in college and, and after graduation, I started going to Kingdom Halls in now where I was living in Tallahassee and renewing those conversations. And that's what ultimately led me into Christian apologetics and where I am today. And so my past with Jehovah's Witnesses, my many friendships and acquaintances with Jehovah's Witnesses and sit in multiple cities that I've lived in across the country um, have been a huge part of my life and my ministry. And I look forward to hopefully being able to equip and help you to be able to have conversations with them as well and bring the true gospel to Jehovah's Witnesses. So what do Jehovah's Witnesses believe? Well, I'm not going to give you an exhaustive systematic theology on absolutely every doctrine they have. It would take many episodes to cover it all. And you don't really need to know everything to be able to talk with Jehovah's Witnesses, but a few key points that it's important to know. One, a starting point would be something that we agree on, that there is one and only one eternal, genuine God in all of existence. They are monotheists in the, the strict sense of eternal, almighty God. As we'll see, there are other lesser created beings that they're willing to call God's lowercase g, but they mean that in a totally different sense. When you really want to talk about almighty, eternal God, they believe there is one and only one God, Jehovah. They would even agree with me that Yahweh is probably closer to the original pronunciation, but Jehovah, the standard anglicized form, we're both comfortable having calling God Jehovah and having that conversation. But unlike historic Christians, they are Unitarian. God is one person, not three. God is, in their case, only the Father. The Son is not God. The Holy Spirit is not God. God is also much more limited in Jehovah's Witness theology than in historic Christianity. That's not the way they would put it, and they would, would, they would be unhappy with me stating it that way. But the fact is that their God does not exhaustively know the future. Yes, he knows specific events that he's determined to do, and so he can accurately prophesy those. But for example, every Jehovah's Witness I've ever talked to about the fall has said that God, when he created Adam, did not know if Adam would fall or not. 
that was not that that was not a guaranteed thing. God wasn't sure what was going to happen there. So in whereas in in Christianity, with the biblical teaching, God absolutely knew had a plan in the fall. It the gospel, Jesus Christ, the cross, uh, which we'll get to that in a minute. But the cross wasn't Plan B. It was God's intention to save a people through the sacrifice of the eternal son. Jehovah's Witnesses would believe none of that. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe, and this is going to be a central part of what we talk about today, but they do not believe that God is presently sovereign over all the earth. They believe that after the fall, when mankind uh, uh, fell to Satan's temptation, that God gave control of the world to Satan, that the devil is, is presently the God of this world, not just in the sense that sinful man follows his ways, but in the sense that he's actually in control of the world. If natural disasters happen, the devil did it. Um, when when uh, evil systems of government, the devil designed them, the, the devil is given an extreme amount of power in this age because God has taken his hands off in Jehovah's Witness theology and handed the world over to Satan for a time. Um, and so God has no purpose in suffering, no purpose in tragedy, except to for Satan to mess everything up so God can prove his point and earn back the right to run his own creation. This is nothing like the biblical God. And again, we'll look a lot at that later. So, okay, that's who God is, the Father. Who is Jesus? Well, in Jehovah's Witness theology, Jesus is the first creation, the archangel Michael. And they believe that it's through Jesus as his workman that God created everything else. So Jesus is, in a sense, the only direct creation of Jehovah. And the rest of creation, Jehovah created indirectly through Michael, who would be later called Jesus when he became a man. And so he is a high and lofty creation, but is a mere creation, a created being uh, and not God. He is a high angelic, they would say, spirit creature. Um, how about the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit's not a person at all. In Jehovah's Witness theology, they use the term God's active force. And there, it means that that is the, the means, the mechanism, the force by which God, who is spirit, interacts with the physical world. And so they use analogies of electricity or gravity, uh, that it is an impersonal force that, that personal beings utilize to accomplish things. And so that's all the Holy Spirit is. In Jehovah's Witness belief. And so, well, what is the gospel? Well, we'll I will do a whole nother video on that at a later time about what the Jehovah's Witness gospel is versus the biblical gospel. But in short, it's largely what you would expect in any cultic or sub-Christian gospel. It is that Jesus Christ and his death, the grace of God through the death of Jesus Christ is necessary, but not enough. Um, our faith in Christ is necessary, but not enough. That it provides merely the opportunity for us to do a series of required works 
by which we can earn the right to have eternity. And in Jehovah's Witness theology, there's two entirely different eternities. 144,000 people will be turned into angelic spirit, spirit creatures and reign with Christ forever. And most of the New Testament promises are for those people, and you are not one of those people. You are part, uh, almost certainly, you and every Jehovah's Witness you meet will believe themselves to be part of the great crowd, which is people who will be resurrected in perfect, undying human bodies, exactly like Adam's body in Eden. And you will live on a paradise earth, a very Eden-like earth, but without the, the bodily presence of Christ, without God dwelling literally in your midst, they will be ruling over you from heaven. So it'll be a very nice place to live. But the most important thing to the biblical Christian about eternity, about heaven, is getting to dwell forever with God. And that's the one thing that the majority of Jehovah's Witnesses just take for granted that they cannot and will not have. And so, it's, it's not much of a gospel at all. And the worst thing is that every Jehovah's Witness I've talked to also believes that, like Adam, unfallen Adam, you will still have the free will in all eternity to sin, and sin will be possible, even though you no longer have a fallen nature, you don't have the inclination to sin, and there will no longer, longer be Satan as a tempter tempting you to sin, so they'll argue it's really unlikely you would, but if you do, at any point, a billion years from now, a trillion years from now, you sin in eternity, you're wiped out. There is never, even in eternity, a guarantee, a security in the salvation that ultimately you still have to continue living perfection without failure to stay alive forever on the Jehovah's Witness system. Unsurprising then that behind the smiling faces when you get to know Jehovah's Witnesses that many Jehovah's Witnesses that I've met are, once you get to know them, very miserable, discouraged people struggling to live up to a hopeless gospel, truly believing it, but with no real hope that it will ever provide them any security now or in eternity. The only solace they can take is that they don't believe in eternal punishment. Everyone simply, everyone who's not a good Jehovah's Witness living on in eternity simply ceases to exist. You're just gone. Not too much comfort there, but... And so, these things and many other things, they deny Jesus was nailed to a cross, he was nailed to a single upright beam, and that's really important to them, for whatever reason. Uh, they deny that Jesus was ever physically resurrected. He died as a... he did become a human being, then he died, and then his body stayed dead, and the tomb was found empty because God destroyed the body, for reasons that are never really explained. And that, but, but he was resurrected back into his Michael the Archangel spirit form and will never again take on human flesh. These and so many other differences between their teaching and, and, and biblical Christianity I could go into. But this, I hope, is sufficient for you to begin to grasp the need to reach these people, to bring the biblical hope of the gospel, the true reconciliation with the genuine triune God of Scripture,
how much they need the gospel. And so that said, where do we start? What conversation should we have with a Jehovah's Witness? And there's a lot of ways you can go. There's no one right or wrong, but a particular direction I often like as my beginning subject because many Jehovah's Witnesses are eager to talk about it, but they're not quite as scripted where you can get them off their script and really talking to you on the subject. And that's actually beginning with the issue of God and human suffering. Why is there suffering in the world? And the Bible's answer to that, God's relationship to suffering, the Bible's answer to that is much more robust than the Jehovah's Witness, the, the Jehovah's Witness answer. And when we go there, it shows them first that their doctrine doesn't line up with the gospel, but with the Bible. But secondly, it brings us right up to the door of the gospel where we can present it to them when they're beginning to consider, hopefully, Lord willing, as the Spirit opens their heart, these things. And so I want to take a look at, uh, at first a few texts from their own scriptures so you can understand what they believe about this question. You don't have to have these memorized or show them their own sources. They know what they believe. Uh, you can even ask them to explain it to you just in case they might have a, a slightly uh, idiosyncratic view compared to the rest of Jehovah's Witnesses on the subject. But this is what their literature teaches on the subject of human suffering and God's relationship to it. And then we're going to take a look at what the Bible teaches and how we can share that. So if we look here, here's a quote from one of their magazines. We have, God is not responsible for bad things that happen to people, nor does he make them suffer. We look elsewhere, we read, pastors, priests, and religious teachers often say that it is God's will that people suffer. Some may say that everything that happens to a person, including tragedies, has already been decided by God, and we can never understand why. Now, that's a shallow, one-dimensional presentation of what we say. But yes, I say God has a purpose. God does have a purpose in every tragedy that occurs. When, when horrible things happen, it's not meaningless. God doesn't just, oh, well, there's nothing I could do about it. God has a purpose in every individual, and I take great comfort in that. So yes, I do say that God has a purpose in tragedies that God has a sovereign will in all the suffering that occurs in the world. And they point out, pastors and priests say that. But they say, yeah, others may even say that people, including little children, die so that they can be with God in heaven. But that isn't true. God has no plan in suffering. God has no purpose. There's no reason for any tragedy that ever happens to you in the plan of God. They say Jehovah never causes bad things to happen. And here by bad, they don't mean morally evil. They mean tragic things, hardships. You have, can you imagine a loving mother deliberately harming her child? No, a caring parent, on the contrary, would try to alleviate a child's suffering. Likewise, God does not cause innocent people to suffer. Even so, innocent people are suffering. 
Now here we would note uh, in, in passing the fact that this side of the fault, there are no innocent people. So there is suffering in the world because of sin. And there, there aren't innocent people before God. But as we're going to see that the, the Bible's answer on suffering is a bit more complex than just punishment for sin. That's involved, but there's so much more than that. But, okay, to take uh, from their literature, they say, God neither causes bad things to happen nor incites others to do what is bad. They say, yet again, in uh, their, their book, What Does the Bible Really Teach? Little, the, the, the copy I have is from an old yellow printing of it. I think they've updated the cover since then. But uh, those who are, who are watching the show versus listening to the podcast, you'll see the picture of it right here. But this is a book that I want to pause and really mention because they hand this one out a lot. They use this one a lot in their conversations. You're likely to see this book. And so here we have one of our most important quotes that I want to read from them. And that's where they say, quote, do you know why people make the mistake of blaming God for all the suffering in the world? In many cases, they blame God because they think he is the real ruler of this world. The real ruler of this world is Satan, the devil. End quote. This is the difference right here. Now, I don't blame God for suffering, but I do acknowledge that God is sovereign and in control and has a plan even in the suffering that happens, has a purpose, and that sometimes God directly does cause suffering. There are, there are judgments that God sent on cities. God flooded the entire world killed the human population outside of uh, uh, Noah and his family. I mean, God does even cause suffering for just and righteous reasons. He is not blameworthy for that. He is a holy and just judge who is praiseworthy for that. But a Jehovah's Witness is not comfortable with that idea. So the question then is, does Scripture teach that sorry <laughs> it's all right <laughs> hey the, these these are live recordings this stuff happens <laughs> all right so so we look i think a, a very important passage to start and to take your jehovah's witness friends and neighbors to is in isaiah 45 6 through 7 that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the West, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, all caps, that's Yahweh, that's Jehovah, by name. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So this is God saying what he wants everyone from the East to the West, from where the sun rises to where it sets, everyone will know this. He is the Lord, there is no other. And it continues, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord. I am Jehovah who does all these things. God's not embarrassed about the fact 
that he causes calamity justly and rightly for his sovereign purposes. God wants the world to know that. This is something for which God ought to be praised. That everything that happens is in his control. And he has a purpose, a greater good that he is bringing about in all things. But whether you're comfortable with it or not, Jehovah says it plainly. I create light and darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I, Jehovah, do all these things. Now, from here, you can take them to any number of examples. But my favorite to go to, personally, and one that, that I've, uh, others who I've, who I've taught this to have also found it helpful in conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses to walk through, is in Amos 4, 6 through 11. Uh, part of the value in this is that not a lot of people read Amos, so you don't have prepared answers. You can actually hear it for the first time and really listen to it without just falling back on a script without thinking. Um, that's true of Jehovah's Witnesses. Let's face it, that's true of evangelicals. The minor prophets don't get the study that they deserve. Um, and so, but another reason is this passage is just so plainly clear on so many levels about God's involvement in these things. And so we read, God says through the prophet Amos, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. So lack of bread, cleanness of teeth. You had nothing to eat. There's no food in your mouth, so your teeth stay clean. I starved you. Uh, I think, uh, Aaron, did you have something to say there? Was that the... Uh... This is your five minute mark. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Well, let's get, let's get moving then. <laughs> okay. Um, so God says, I give you, I gave, I gave you cleanness of teeth. You were hungry. You were starving. And who did that to you? I did declares Jehovah, but you didn't return to me. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me. Hunger, thirst. Jehovah says, I did that to you. Continue. I struck you with blight and mildew, on your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me. Now, this is a particular, particularly powerful one to pause and note here, because God is taking credit for what? For I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. This is Jehovah saying that when, when their enemies came in with the sword and slaughtered them and stole their stuff, 
Wicked men came in and did wicked things. And God's saying, even that, I did that to you. That happened to you because I had a plan to punish you. Your enemies would never have accomplished that if I had not decided to punish you by their hand. God takes credit even for that. Now, does that mean God made those men, those enemies of Israel, sin? Did God make them do evil things? No, but God planned that they would do those evil things at, those, at that time. And God, who otherwise would have protected his people, opened up and let it happen, intended it to happen as a punishment, a chastisement on his people. Yet they did not return to him. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me. Now notice here, he compares the suffering he inflicted on them to the suffering he inflicted on other cities in the past. God is, is, is acknowledging even more punishment, suffering that he inflicted on people as punishment for sin. God does this, and it is right for God to do this. This is not wrong. God's not embarrassed about this. He's not apologizing for this, and he shouldn't, because it's right and good that God would punish evil. And sometimes Jehovah's Witnesses at this point will say, okay, I do admit when punishing sin, God will cause suffering, but not in any other circumstance. God would never design or will or desire suffering that isn't punishment for sin. And yet there is a story. Um, my wife and two of my children are born blind. So it's a story that's very, very close to my heart. Uh, story in John chapter nine, Jesus and his disciples are walking and they see a man born blind begging on the street. And you have to understand life for a blind person is awesome now compared to what it was at other times in history. And in that day, they would have had no opportunity for work, no trade, especially a man born blind who didn't already know how to do something or hadn't already become a scholar or something before losing his sight. Uh, you had rare examples of that. But by and large, if you were blind, especially born blind, you were a beggar living off alms, often going hungry often diseased, not with a, a, a great place to stay. And this guy was a grown man. It says later explicitly he was an adult because his, his parents, when uh, the, the uh, uh, synagogue authorities go to question them about what happens when Jesus heals the man, they tell him, no, go talk to him. He's a grown man. He can answer for himself. So he had gone through his whole childhood on into adulthood through all the suffering that would have gone along with being a man born blind in the ancient Roman world. And yet, we're going to see God, even that had a plan in. And Jesus' disciples outright ask him, why is he blind? Who's being punished? Were his parents punished for, for, with a blind child? Is having a blind child born to you, is that a punishment? Is that why he's blind? Or did he sin prenatally somehow so that he was born blind as a punishment for his own sin. Which is it? Why is he blind? And Jesus gives them an unexpected answer. 
Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Why is he blind? So that God could glorify himself by healing this man. And you might say, well, that's a cruel plan. The man didn't think so. When he was healed, he rejoiced, he glorified God, and he wanted to follow Jesus even if it cost him everything. He did not resent that God had this plan. But, but Jesus explicitly says, the man suffered all of this. It was God's plan. God intended to display his works by Jesus healing him. God had a plan in his suffering, but that was not, it wasn't about anyone's sin being punished. And so in all levels, the Jehovah's Witness explanation fails. God takes credit for these things. He says he is sovereign in it. He does have a plan. It's not the devil. The devil didn't make this man blind. God did for his own glory. And we should join the blind man in praising God for that. Okay, so just to wrap things up real quick, where, where do we then go with this? We show them this and okay, they have to wrestle with the fact that the Bible doesn't agree with what they teach. But now I want to take them one step further. You see, the gospel is all about God having a plan in suffering and even in human acts of evil. In Acts 4, 27 and 28, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So all these people with their wicked plots and their wicked plans to do evil to Jesus that ultimately resulted in his crucifixion, his execution and unjust death. But how does Acts explain what they were doing? So all these people in the city of Jerusalem plotting against Jesus to do whatever your hand praying to God to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus' unjust death, the very gospel itself, Jesus dying for our sin, the very reason God sent his son was to suffer, was for evil men to do evil things that would result in the suffering of Jesus Christ. That was the very reason he came. God's plan before Christ was ever born, before Pontius Pilate was ever born, before Herod was ever born, was for Jesus to be turned over unjustly to that death, to pay the price for our sin perfectly. The gospel is God having a sovereign plan in the greatest act of injustice and the greatest human suffering in all of history. And for God to use that to place the punishment we deserve for our sins on him so that Jesus could die our death and we could, by God's grace alone, live his eternal life that he gives us. And so by discussing this issue, we bring ourselves right to the place to then share the gospel of God's sovereign grace with a people hopefully now ready to at least give it a hearing, realizing that the Bible doesn't say what their organization has led them to believe it to say. Well, I hope this is something that you guys can use 
in future conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses who may knock on your door or who you, who you may work with or otherwise have a chance to interact with. And I pray the Spirit of God would give you the courage to have those conversations, to stammer through them, run into objections you're not ready to answer, and go study yourself. And God will use that too to strengthen you and Lord willing to reach them. God bless you guys and have a great day.